Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, welcome back everybody. Um, at this time we uh, start a tradition to just go around the room and say our names. Um, and then get some other teachers. So, I'm Grisha. I'm Douglas Hall. I'm Tom. I'm Brad. I'm George. Peter. My name is Oswaldo. My name is Ray. Michael. Matthew. Larry. Ken. My name is Jerry. My name is Mark. Don. David. My name is Michael. I'm Greg. My name is Gary. Phil. Brian. Silas. Joe. My name is Robert. Jim. Mike. Richard. I'm Richard also. Mm-hmm. I'm Hal. I'm Juan. John. Tim. I'm David. I'm Tim. Welcome everyone. <coughs> um, and so uh, today we have David Lewis uh, giving us his Dharma today. So uh, David has been following the Dharma path for over 40 years and has a degree in comparative religious studies. He started out in the Tibetan Shambhala tradition and has been practicing Vipassana meditation since moving to San Francisco over 25 years ago. For the past seven years, he's been practicing intensively. David is a member of the Mission Dharma Sangha, where he teaches an introduction to insight meditation. He is a longtime member of the David's Fellowship and also leads a weekly sitting group for seniors every Friday morning. David is a graduate of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center's dedicated practitioners program and has been on the teaching team for Spirit Rock and Gabriel's Fellowship Retreat. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. <clears throat> the reason in my bio that um, it says that I've been practicing intensively for the last seven years is because I really fell in love with the practice about seven years ago. It's actually more like ten years now. Um, I just love this practice. It supports me. It brings joy to my life. And um, at times of difficulties, it, uh, it's a great refuge for me. So um, that's really the intention behind not only my practice, but uh, sharing the Dharma like I'm doing this morning. Is, uh, it's, it's not my hope to convert anybody to Buddhism, but um, I wouldn't mind converting some of you to uh, the practice of meditation. <laughs> Because I know it's difficult for a lot of people, meditation. Um, we don't talk about practice here so, uh, so very often. Um, Buddhism can be uh, talked about and viewed and studied as kind of a, as a religion, as a belief system, as a kind of existential um, philosophy, way of looking at the world. Um, and very often in Dharma talks, including mine, that's the way it comes across. But um, as you've heard me say before, because this is my what I really love about 
Buddhism is that it's really a practice and a science. It's a science of mind. And uh, as such, that's how it's trans- transformational. Simply thinking about Buddhism or some of the ideas and concepts uh, can be inspirational and motivational. But um, that's not what's going to fundamentally change us. What fundamentally changes us and ourselves and the world is changing our relationship to thoughts and the way we, uh, the way our minds work. And uh, the way that's done is through the practice of meditation or various different practices of meditation. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of different meditation practices. This wasn't going to be what I was going to talk about this morning. I was working on a different talk, but I was here last week for Gary's uh, really wonderful talk about Tong Wen, and he mentioned several other practices um, in working up to talking about Tong Wen practice. Some of you may have been, been here. It was a really interesting talk. Um, and as soon as I heard it, I thought, well, I'm just going to piggyback on that and on what Gary was talking about last week and, and talk about some practices because we, we have a retreat coming up and some of you may be coming on the retreat and one of the things that I do uh, very often when I uh, go on a retreat is I make an intention about what kind of practices I want to do. But even if you're not coming on the retreat, that might be something you want to consider in your, uh, in your uh, everyday life is what kind of practices do you want to do? Uh, maybe you're, you've, you've learned one kind of practice and that's what um, you're comfortable with and that's what you always do uh, and there's nothing wrong with that but the Buddha was very pragmatic in offering these different types of practices because he realized that we go through different uh, moods, phases of life uh, we have different needs at different times and different practices address those different needs it's very pra- pragmatic if you, if you want to develop loving kindness and, and an open heart, there's a practice for that. If you want to calm your mind, there's a practice for that. If you want to be at peace with the world, there's a practice for that. If you want to wish well for others, there's a practice for that. So, um, I teach beginning meditation classes amongst other things. and. Very often people, the first time we have a class um, and I'm talking to a group of beginners, I ask them what they do when they close their eyes and meditate before I make any suggestions. Um, And usually people describe a process, if they're willing to talk about it, which is always a great thing, they describe a process of just kind of letting their mind wander or watching their mind wander. this thought, then that thought, and they might get caught up in something, and they might be completely lost, and then all of a sudden the the bell rings, but they've been in thought the whole time. That's not meditation. But there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's a good relaxation process, but as long as we're feeding our thoughts and um, thinking our thoughts, as opposed to simply noticing them, it's not really meditation. But if we make the subtle change of noticing our thoughts as opposed to thinking about them, uh, then that is meditation. Thoughts aren't the problem. Thoughts are going to happen whether you want them or not. So the other mistake that a lot of beginners uh, 
make is they think, well, I need to get rid of thoughts. And they sit down and close their eyes, and it doesn't work very well, right? Um, and then we decide we can't meditate. So thoughts aren't the problem. It's more a relationship to thoughts. It's about noticing rather than thinking. Thinking is an active engagement with thoughts, uh, sometimes a passive engagement with thoughts. We just let them take over. Uh, and that's pretty much our reactive everyday experience. But in uh, meditation, uh, I may have used this quote because I like it so much, uh, the last time I was here, uh, many, many meditation practices are based in mindfulness. And that's what we talk about, especially nowadays. Very often people talk about mindfulness instead of meditation. My favorite definition of mindfulness is an open and receptive, non-judgmental awareness of your present moment experience. An open and receptive, non-judgmental awareness of your present moment experience. The, the, the key word in the middle of that is awareness. So it's an awareness practice. Awareness of thoughts, awareness of feelings, awareness of bodily sensations, awareness of the tweaking coffee pot. <laughs> Which is kind of a gift, that tweaking coffee pot. I don't know if any of you noticed that during the course of your meditation, your mind might have wandered off, you might have been caught up in thought, and then there was a tweak, and it brought you right back to the moment. So the, your reaction might have been, well, that's annoying, it interrupts me every, every 30 seconds, but it's actually bringing you back to the present moment. <laughs> so, there you are. So, um, as Gary did last week, I want to talk about a few, pra a few practices. I actually want to talk about three practices and do a little bit of them, uh, just a couple of minutes of, of each practice. Um, Gary mentioned um, in the course of his talk that the kind of the, the core practices uh, that the Buddha taught um, himself, and there's many practices that were developed by people after the Buddha, but the two core pra practices that the Buddha taught were um, shamatha or samadhi meditation and vipassana meditation. And uh, so I want to talk about those a little bit. Um, they're good core practices for everybody to have in their toolbox for meditating. And, and meditation can be a 30 seconds <coughs> at your desk, at work, in everyday life. It doesn't have to be a formal sit like we do here. Samadhi or shamatha practice two different descriptions or two different um, definitions from different languages for the same practice is uh, sometimes referred to as concentration practice. And for both of these practices, basically what the instructions uh, uh, offer us is a way of uh, working with awareness. The open and receptive, not judgmental awareness of a present moment experience that I described. So we actually um, uh, direct our awareness in meditation in a very intentional and active way. And in concentration, in samadhi practice, uh, we direct our, think of your awareness as a, as a, um, as a beam or a, a, a flashlight or a, a, a lighthouse beam. Of, and we shine it on what we want to focus on. And in samadhi practice, uh, 
We make that a very narrow focus. We focus on one thing. We choose an object of meditation. And very often, more often than not, uh, that's described or is suggested that you use the breath or the body. Samadhi, or, or shamatha practice, is what the Buddha was practicing when he became enlightened. Uh, simply focusing on the breath or the body. It could be your posture or any part of your body. The reason for that is that your, bo- your breath is always present. Your body is always present. There's nothing more present moment than this body. So a body-based practice or a a breath-based practice guarantees, if you can stay with it, guarantees that you'll be in the present moment. It's a very present moment experience. That's one thing you can rely on, being in the here and now is your body. So, um, shamatha, one of the translations for shamatha, or this practice, is calm abiding. One of the outcomes of focusing on your breath exclusively is um, to calm the mind. And that's the intention of this practice, is to calm the mind. Uh, which is, when um, I teach beginner's classes, a lot of people tell me that's what they're here for, is to calm the mind. Uh, Vipassana practice is more about understanding ourselves and wisdom. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So in uh, samadhi, or shamatha practice, The way we calm the mind is we bring our attention back to our breath over and over again. And sometimes it's described as, um, in instructions, the the, the teacher or the leader will um, lead you through, bring your attention to your breath. Notice the in-breath, notice the out-breath, notice the space between the breaths. Basically become very intimate with your breath. And then, during the course of meditation, your mind will wander because that's the nature of mind. Mind wanders. Um, so the instruction is to come back to the breath whenever you notice the mind wander. So um, the breath is the center of that meditation. And it's not a mistake in meditation uh, to find that your mind is wandered, but you've in the instructions for samadhi meditation, you bring your attention back to your breath, and only your breath. So your breath is your um, what we call an anchor, like a, a ship's anchor that holds it um, steady in the harbor. So otherwise, if a ship is, is, is not anchored in a harbor, it'll drift away, right, as the mind does. So the breath can be a very reliable anchor in um, meditation practice. So um, this is probably the simplest and most, um, most direct meditation instruction that I know of is samadhi practice. Simply pay attention to your breath and come back to it as often as you need to. So the, the practice of samadhi uh, as, a, as a meditation practice is uh, not so much a practice of being always with your breath. It's a practice of coming back to your breath over and over again. You might feel a bodily sensation or a twinge or have some pain, and you notice it. Oh, pain. Back to the breath. A thought might arise. Oh, there's a thought. Back to the breath. When's the bell going to ring? Back to the breath. Over and over again. Um, You could do this. um, Some people, it's their primary practice, their sole practice. Um, You could do it for an entire retreat. I've done it for a month at a time. Back to the breath. Back to the breath. Um, 
it trains the mind to be steady um, and to stay focused on one object. And after a while, everything else kind of falls away. But when you first start doing it, um, what you'll notice is this drifting away. Your attention drifts to something else. That 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 um, beam of of attention uh, shifts to whatever becomes more predominant, and we have to remind ourselves to come back to the breath. So uh, let's just try that for uh, a couple of minutes. And just encourage you to be comfortable in whatever position you're in. And if you're comfortable, close your eyes. Gently, let the eyes close. Just notice the sensation of being in a body. Even with your eyes closed, you know you're in a body because you feel touch points. You feel your back on the chair or your rump on your cushion or the chair. You feel the touch of your clothes. Any of these could be a meditation object or an anchor. Also, another aspect of being in a body is breathing. Something we largely take for granted. The breathing frees itself. We don't have to make it happen. But in samadhi meditation, we make breathing our primary focus. We have an intention to follow our breath. So that doesn't involve changing anything, just noticing the quality of your breath. Noticing the in-breath, which might be cool, cool air coming from outside. Noticing the out-breath, a little warmer, warmed by your lungs. Noticing the space between the end of the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath. Noticing whether the breath is short or long, or perhaps it changes. Noticing a yawn if it happens, another kind of breath. Just take a moment. Rest your attention on your breath. Perhaps by now your mind has wandered. If so, no big deal. Bring your attention back to your breath. Start all over again.
So, and that's uh, shavata, that's samadhi practice. Uh, it's very simple. There's no simpler uh, instruction that I know. And even in that space of a couple of minutes, you might have noticed that it's not so easy to do. Even in a minute, your mind will wander. Or you might think, this is boring. My mind wants to be entertained. I want a distraction. The breath isn't enough. We're not used to that kind of simplicity in our lives. That kind of simplicity is uh, what the Buddha offered as a refuge from, uh, from distraction. And craziness. But the mind wants to be distracted. Anybody notice that? Uh, I happened to see a definition a while back, or I, I was flipping through my files, and uh, I don't know if I've ever said this before, because I've kind of forgotten it. But in Shakespeare's time, um, Shakespeare used the word distraction. In Shakespeare's time, distraction meant, does anybody know? Madness as in driven to distraction. Um, so um, this is the Buddha's uh, offer of refuge from madness. Is, uh, focusing the mind, simplifying. So um, there's a, a, a Jack Cornfield, a local meditation teacher, uh, gave a really wonderful one-line definition of, of or, or meditation instruction for samadhi or he's basically offered what I did. He said, pay attention to your breath, watch your breath. When you notice your mind has gone away, come back to your breath. Now do that a thousand times. <laughs> and uh, a thousand times might sound like a lot, but if you um, do this practice even for a half an hour, 45 mm -hmm. minutes, you'll probably notice that you've um, wandered off and you need to come back dozens of times. So, a thousand times, not so much. It's good practice. So that's um, a little bit about concentration practice. The other core practice that the Buddha taught was uh, Vipassana, or Vipassana practice. And in Vipassana practice, in, in concentration practice, I, I, I described the, the, the beam of your attention as being a very narrow focus. In Vipassana practice, we do a very wide focus. Let your attention fall on everything that's happening. The quality of the light of the room, temperature, <coughs> mood, the tweaking of the coffee pot, any sound that comes to you. Um, thoughts arising. We notice them without thinking them. So um, a thought arising should, you know, in Vipassana practice, a thought arising in your consciousness uh, should not be um, any more of a distraction than the coffee pot tweaking. A thought's just a thought. A sound is just a sound. Bodily sensation is just a bodily sensation. And our, um, in, in Vipassana practice, our attention takes in all of these things. So uh, a lot's going on in Vipassana practice. Um, anything that comes to us through our five senses and our mind is a suitable object for, for meditation. We have many, many objects of meditation. Uh, so it's uh, a wide focus instead of a narrow focus. Ajahn Chah, who's a great uh, uh, 
one of the great meditation teachers of the mid-20th century, who was a Thai monk, uh, described it this way. This is his meditation instruction for Vipassana. Just go into a room, sit in the center of the room, open the doors and windows. By that he means the doors and windows of your perception, your senses. Sit in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories, everything imaginable. Your only job is to stay in, stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this, wisdom and understanding will come. So it's a very beautiful instruction because um, he's, he's pointing out one of the great truths, one of the, the profound truths, I think, of Buddhist practice, and that's that we don't get wisdom and understanding by thinking about things. Um, as we do in Western education, we get wisdom and understanding by paying attention simply to what's going on, simplifying our experience and paying attention. There's a, an, another beautiful instruction that the, the same monk, Ajahn Chah, gives. It's, it's kind of similar. That, um, gets quoted more often. It's just, it's almost poetry. Um, it says, sit down, try to be mindful, and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come and drink at the pool. You'll see clearly the nature of things in the world. Many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So sit in a room and see who visits, or sit by a pond and see who shows up. It's basically, um, I know you've heard many times the Rumi poem, The Guest House. It's about um, sitting down and seeing what shows up. In other words, paying attention to whatever arises in your mind, in your body, in your senses. Simple as that. So let's try that for a moment, just for practice. Once again, noticing that you're in a body and allowing your attention to take in um, whatever's coming to it. Might be my breath, my, my, the sound of my voice. It might be your breath, your body. It might also be noises coming from outside, bodily sensations. These are all phenomena. All of them are appropriate objects of meditation. And likewise, thoughts or feelings arising are simply phenomena. We try without getting attached to them to simply noticing them arising. And if we don't get attached to thoughts that arise, feelings, then they're simply like clouds that appear in a clear blue sky, come together for a moment, and dissipate. So just take a moment in silence and notice absolutely everything that draws your attention. And try to let each one of those things, as you notice it, be and see if it's followed by something else. <coughs>
And if your attention has wandered, you can bring it back to your chosen anchor, perhaps your breath, and start your meditation all over again, allowing it to be aware of whatever is most predominant. short practice, but I hope it was enough to notice the difference between concentration on one object, the breath, and opening your awareness to everything that's happening. When we do Vipassana practice, it's kind of, it's amazing to me how much is going on in meditation. Particularly if you're, if you have the privilege of sitting up here in the front of the room like I am and seeing these people, their eyes peacefully closed, and you think, wow, we're all blissed out. But actually, I have a pretty good idea that there's probably a lot going on. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, noises, bodily sensations, judgments. When's the bell going to ring? That's all okay in Vipassana meditation. We just notice one thing after another. One of the um, one of the truths uh, that you will come to very often uh, that one of the very first ones in doing Vipassana meditation is that everything changes. It's the uh, great noble truth of an, anicca, of change, that the Buddha taught. We notice that uh, just in our meditation practice. So um, I don't recommend one or the other. I very often do both um, in, a, in any given session of meditation. I will start out focusing on my breath to kind of settle my mind and um, get everything focused. Um, and then once I feel like I'm somewhat settled, uh, then I open up my attention to well, whatever's most predominant uh, without getting attached and start noticing the changing phenomena, changing objects in meditation. It's noticing thoughts and feelings without thinking them. And that's the trick in meditation. That's what takes some practice. Um, practice is, is much more about noticing what's going on in our experience than thinking. Getting back to repeating my uh, definition of mindfulness is an open and receptive, non-judgmental awareness of your present moment experience. Whatever's going on in the moment, this is truly being in the here and now. So um, there's another step we can do. Um, you can choose to, and it's a little bit more advanced um, meditation practice, and that's um, investigation. And investigation is not, as you might think, um, thinking about what's going on. Um, investigation is noticing how it feels. What's this bring up for me? How am I reacting to it? A, a, a great Burmese teacher named Utejaniya, who's currently alive, teaches in the United States sometimes. His instructions are, are profoundly simple. He says, simply ask yourself, what am I aware of? And secondly, how am I responding to it? 
And if you know the parable of the of the two arrows we talk about sometimes that the Buddha offered, that's basically it's what Utejini is referring to here. Is, uh, what am I aware of? How am I responding to it? The first arrow and the second arrow. I had. Um, I'm going to give you an example of um, a meditation I had the other day. I don't know why, for some reason, this seemed really profound to me. But, it, but I know as soon as I, I wrote it down and so described, I thought that's this is a profound. <laughs> <laughs> Very often, that's the way insights are. We have these. It, it, I don't know if you've noticed this in, in your uh, in your practice, as you have insights that um, feel very profound, and they are profound. But as soon as you describe them, they don't sound profound anymore. <laughs> um, and it, it, a Nietzsche or, or impermanence is maybe one of those insights. And I've heard people say this. It's like, oh my God, everything changes. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> but that's a profound thing to notice and be aware of. So I had uh, the, the other morning, I, 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 my very first meditation of the day nowadays is um, I, I try to be mindful. Uh, I don't even call this meditating. I try to be mindful the moment I woke up, wake up. As soon as I, my mind is conscious, waking up in the morning, laying in bed, I try to notice what's going on. Just out of curiosity, to kind of see my mind gearing up to get ready to, to be conscious. And what I find is that it's always already geared up. This happens before I'm actually awake. And the other morning I woke up and um, I was having an unpleasant dream, or I had an unpleasant dream. Not exactly a nightmare, but I had a bad dream that caused me to have anxiety, so I noticed anxiety. So actually the first arrow was this dream that I was having, which I remembered at the time, but because I decided to pay attention to the anxiety instead of the dream, I forgot it right away. So the first arrow was the dream, and the second arrow was anxiety, how I responded to it. So I just laid there and I thought, okay, how does anxiety feel? This is kind of interesting, because I hadn't actually felt anxiety for a while. It's, but I know it's familiar. I know what anxiety feels like. I think most of us do. So I just decided to kind of explore that feeling. How does it feel in the body? It's unpleasant. It's kind of buzzy and restless. It's uncomfortable. Um, but I was trying not to be judgmental about it. Like, this has to go away, or how do I get rid of anxiety? I'm just going to be with anxiety. Next thing I noticed in my meditation, notice the dream and the anxiety. Next thing I noticed was other things coming to my mind. What I was going to do that day, it's my list of tasks, something that happened the day before. You know, the usual stuff that kind of arise as we wake up in the morning. And one of the things I noticed was that every one of these things as they came into my consciousness was tinged by anxiety because I had this anxiety. I found that really interesting. So if I was thinking, as opposed to observing, if I was thinking about my experience, I'd be telling myself, well, I'm anxious about this, and I'm anxious about that, and I'm anxious about the other thing. But because I was intentionally observing um, anxiety, just as a, uh, investigating anxiety as a feeling, realize that well, I'm really not anxious about all those things. It's just the fact that I'm a little bit anxious is coloring whatever comes to my consciousness. It made it really easy for me to let go of um, the anxiety. It just kind of dissipated because I realized it wasn't actually 
attached to any of these things. It wasn't the objects that were, of anxiety that were important to me or the content. Uh, it was just this kind of nebulous anxiety. So um, that's how we do investigation. Is we don't think about anxiety or the objects or what I'm, what I'm anxious about or what I'm depressed about or what I'm worried about. We notice worry. Worry feels like this. Depression feels like this. And if you can stick with it, you'll uh, notice that, like everything else in our experience, it changes. It alters. So I don't know, that kind of, the rest of the day, I thought, wow. Uh, that's the first time that I've consciously felt anxiety without being anxious. And it's also a good a demonstration of, of the at least the three first three noble truths is there's uh, there's suffering, there's discomfort, anxiety. There's a cause for discomfort or suffering, and that's the dream I had, or whatever else might be the cause of your anxiety. And there's freedom from anxiety. That's the letting go of attachment. Speaking of anxiety. Um, You've probably heard this quote, but uh, it's a good one. You've got to share it. The Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. <laughs> and then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present, the result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die, and then he dies, never having never lived. <laughs> That's what anxiety will do to you. So um, those are the two uh, primary uh, uh, meditation practices that the, the Buddha taught. Um, and then there's dozens and dozens of others that we have to choose from. Last week, Gary talked about Tong Wen, and I want to talk about um, one that doesn't get talked about that. Well, actually, it gets talked about every single week at GBF, uh, but I'm going to talk about it in a different way. And that's uh, the practice of dana, which is not technically a meditation practice, but it is a mindfulness practice. Uh, every week at GBF and every other sangha I go to, there's the dana talk. The Donna talk basically is, is what we're really saying is uh, we need your support to keep the Sangha going. Uh, please give generously. Mm -hmm. uh, which is true. The way the Buddha talked about Donna was somewhat different. The Buddha, the Buddha talked about Donna as a practice. And actually, the very first talk that the Buddha gave to the lay community, not to the monastic community, <coughs> to the lay community, uh, regular folks like you and me, the very first talk he gave was uh, about Donna. That was his topic. Uh, Donna being giving, the, the Pali word for giving. But there's another Pali word, which is chaga, spelled C-A-G-A. -A. And chaga is um, the motivation to give, or the intention to give, the, the, the opening of the heart that happens before we even decide to give. So Donna and chaga. Um, the Buddha often talked about them together and put more emphasis on chaga than on dana, the intention to give. 
it's um, the Buddha offered it as a happiness practice. So if you want to bring more happiness into your life, uh, Don and Chaga is a good way to do it. Um, I experienced this um, last week when um, I have a little tradition with a couple of uh, neighbors that are also friends. When one of us makes a big pot of soup or spaghetti sauce or something, we um, uh, package up you know, a couple of cups of it and, and pass it off to our, our neighbors because we have extra. And that's Donna, that's sharing. The Buddha said that um, when you practice dana, you should do it as a mindfulness practice. It's notice the feeling that arises when you practice dana and chakra. Notice the intention to share your soup. Like, oh, Jane might like some of this. In fact, I know she'll like it because she told me in the past. Notice the um, your own uh, feeling about actual giving. Like, hey, call up your neighbor, say, got some soup for you. Handing it over the fence. Um, it's a wonderful feeling. Something giving a gift. And likewise, the Buddha said, um, and the Buddha said, stick with that for a while. Notice that um, that wonderful feeling of giving. Notice your own your own beneficial feelings. It's not about the good of the other person. That's about you. You're doing yourself a great favor by sharing. And then notice uh, the feeling of remembering having given that gift. So there's three stages of mindfulness and dana. The intention to give, the act of giving, and remembering the gift. I would add there's a, a, another benefit that um, is, is kind of tangential, but it, and then that's that you're, give, you're giving uh, the opportunity for gratitude to the other, the other person, whoever you give the gift to. Generally, they'll be grateful. I'm usually grateful when somebody shares something with me. And that's another happiness practice. So in giving, you're not only cultivating happiness in yourself, you're cultivating happiness or making the, giving the opportunity for happiness to another person. It's a beautiful, beautiful practice. So not just a sangha, but in everything, sharing soup, sharing a meal. The Buddha said... Pretty close to a correct quote. If you, knew, if you knew what I knew, you would never have a meal without sharing it. If you knew what I knew about Donna, you would never have a meal without sharing it. Because the sharing it is the happy part. Generosity, um, this is a quote from Joseph Goldstein, I think. Generosity takes many forms. We may give out, we may give our time, our energy, our material possessions, our love. All are expressions of caring, of compassion, and of renunciation, the, abil the ability to let go. This third noble truth, letting go. The beauty of generosity is that it not only brings us happiness in the moment, we feel good when we give, but it also is a cause for happiness to arise in the future. So um, I encourage you to think about Ghana as a happiness practice. Um, and uh, uh, I'm not even saying give more Donna or go out and do more Donna. Just notice when you do give or when you have the intention of giving. 
to your friends, to your loved ones, to strangers on the street, to the sangha. Uh, notice the feelings that come up. That's the mindfulness practice that we can cultivate. Notice the feelings. And if it's a good feeling, pump it up. When, um, when I give the Donna talk at sanghas, and I don't do it here very often, um, the way I like to phrase it is, the way I like to think about Donna at Sangha is, I'm here, uh, we're all here, because of the generosity and the love of those brothers that have come before us. People that have created this Sangha, people that have volunteered, the teachers, the board of directors, and ordinary yogis that have offered material positions or food or or whatever, volunteering for the Sangha. We're here uh, as the uh, direct result of the generosity of those that have come before us. And I like to think of those people, especially those that have died or no longer with us or left town. And when I give the Sangha, I like to think, uh, I don't think in terms of, you know, this is for the rent, this is for future yogis, this is for somebody that, um, this is for brothers that haven't joined our Sangha yet that are coming next week or next month or in a year. Paying it forward. So, you don't have to give the Donna talk tonight. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So, um, I'm kind of at time and went on more than I intended to and I don't know if we have, do we have time for questions? it's the usual stopping time. Uh, okay, well, thank you for your kind attention and um, your practice. And, oh, I just want to add that if anybody ever wants to talk about practice or wants suggestions or questions about whatever practice you're doing, um, I'm available for that. You can talk to me or email me or whatever. Thank you for your time. Um, all right. Let's see. Um, I'm Nosed, and my name is Mike, and I'll also be coming around with the Don Bowl. Let's see, in the other announcements, we have uh, free copies of Queer Dharma, two, uh, two volumes, set of books that um, are out of the outlet, and I'll grab them out of the box. If you're interested, new friends, if you want to grab a copy of those books. Um, everyone, is, we'll, after the after we close, we'll have a social out in the hallway and for half an hour, and then some people go to lunch and meet up uh, in the front to get lunch together. Does someone want to make an official announcement about the retreat? Sure. Uh, as David mentioned, our retreat is coming up. It's four weeks from this Friday, October, uh, September 30th to, uh, to October 2nd. Um, I guess maybe a simple way of addressing our theme, which is spiritual friendship on the Eightfold Path, would be how, how do we extend these practices and the benefits of these practices to our relationships, and how do we support one another on this path? So that's part of what we'll be exploring. Um, Jerry, how many folks are registered? 27. So we have room for five or six more people. There are flyers 
uh, on the table to the left and, and also to the right as you exit. Uh, feel free to ask me any questions or Jerry Jones or David, David who's our teacher <coughs> on the weekend. Thanks. Hi, today is Newsletter Day, our oh, quarterly yeah. newsletter mailing. And um, there are over 300 paper copies to send out. 60 of them are to regular people, the rest are all the prisoners. So. When you look at the 40 or so people here, imagine another 200 people sitting behind you who can't be here. So I need volunteers, eight minimum. Please raise your hands. I like commitment. Don't we all? <laughs> Thank you. We'll do it right after the social period. That's Donna, too. It's Donna Day. Okay. Any other happens? All right. Let's uh, gather for the presentation. <laughs> practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from the sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the, in the equality of all the births. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.